welcome. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here with Cross Point Peachtree City. Super excited that you guys are here. It's a little bit of a quirky, really couple of weeks for us. It's spring break, and we live in a, a family-driven area of the city of Atlanta, and so people are dispersed. They're in the city. They're out of the city. People are on vacations. You never know what you're going to get around spring break. So glad that you guys are here with us this morning. Let me give a little disclaimer and let you know that this is a terrible time to start a new series. Very inopportune because uh, last night I woke up at about 3 in the morning and stared at my ceiling until about 6 in the morning. So I am completely delusional right now. I have no idea of what I'm saying. And so this should be very interesting as we jump into a new sermon series that requires a little bit of, of your intellect engaging. We're going to talk about some things that Jesus had to say um, as we open the scriptures, and not the easy stuff, but rather the stuff that, if we're honest, there are times that we wish that we could rip out of the Bible, and some of us proverbially do that. Um, we choose what we want to listen to in terms of what has come off the lips of, of Jesus um, historically, and then uh, there are other things that we, we say, yes, I'll, I'll engage with that, uh, rip that out, don't like that. And so we're going to look at the stuff that you might be inclined to want to rip out of your Bibles from time to time for the next couple of months um, last week being Easter Sunday, if you were here, uh, we took a look at the resurrection of Jesus. That's typically what churches do on Easter Sunday, right? We celebrate the risen king, the one who made a spectacle of Satan, a spectacle of hell, a spectacle of the grave. And, and so here's the deal. That, that celebration uh, that we do once a year, every year on Easter Sunday, it assumes something. It assumes that Jesus is more than a philosopher just throwing out pithy one-liner fortune cookie statements. Right? It, it assumes that Jesus is actually God, that God has risen from the dead. He has conquered death. He has crushed the serpent, Satan. He is the risen king of the universe. That's what Easter assumes. Now, here's the interesting thing. We live in a culture that loves Jesus, the philosopher. We live in a world that loves fortune cookie statements. So I, I wanted to start this morning by just throwing up onto the screen some statements that came out of the mouth of Jesus that I think if you went to Chopsticks or your favorite Chinese restaurant in town and opened up a fortune cookie, you might actually find some of these statements. Statements like this, love one another, right? No one would complain about that. If you opened up a fortune cookie, you saw those three words listed on the sheet of paper on the inside of that fortune cookie, no problem, okay? I'm going to do that today. I'm going to love other people. Or maybe this one, this is a huge one in our culture, judge not that you be not judged, Everyone in our culture loves this statement. 98% of people who use it take it out of context, don't know what it means, but in and of itself, we love it. No problem with it. How about this one? Ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Can you imagine most people opening up a fortune cookie and finding that statement? Yes, today is my day. I'm going to search and I'm going to find exactly what my purpose in life might actually be. Or how about this one? On a bad day, you go to Chopsticks, you open up your fortune cookie, and you see this one. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. And now I can breathe easier because my fortune cookie told me that. Or, last but not least, and we call this one the golden rule, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. We, we live in a world that loves Jesus, the philosopher, that loves fortune cookie statements like these that came out of his mouth. Um, and the truth is, if Jesus is nothing more than a philosopher, then we can do whatever we want to with the Bible. Um, we can uh, throw out fortune cookie one-liners to, to the masses, 
um, keeping statements that we like and discarding the rest, right? The Bible becomes like every other book in the world. Just take out your highlighter, highlight the things that you like, take out a black pen and just strike through all of the statements that Jesus had to say that you don't like. If Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher, a moral philosopher, then you have every right to do that today. You can do that with our Bibles. You can take a Bible out of the seat in front of you, and you can just rip out stuff that you don't like, and you can hang on to the stuff that you do. But if Jesus is actually who he claims to be, God clothed in flesh, if Jesus has actually risen from the dead, if he really did make a spectacle of Satan, of hell and the grave, which we celebrated last week, then he can say whatever he wants. And you and I don't get the luxury of determining which of his words are worthy of our attention. You and I don't get the luxury of proverbially ripping the pages out of our Bibles when we come across things that we don't like. He's either the death-conquering, serpent-crushing, risen king of the universe, or he's not. To say that he's nothing more than a good teacher is absolute folly. C.S. Lewis, many of you have heard this quote before in his work, Mere Christianity, puts it this way. He says this, And I think we have this up on the screen. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, some people say, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. He goes on to say, a man who was merely a man, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, I love this, on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And Lewis closes by saying this, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That what, what Lewis is saying is it's actually more honest. It's more intelligent. It's more academic of you to say that Jesus was the David Koresh of his day than to say that Jesus was just simply a good teacher, a good moral philosopher, and nothing more. That it's actually more honest more intelligent, more academic of you to say that Jesus was one of the best liars to have ever existed in human history, the true father of lies, than to say that he was simply a good teacher, a good moral philosopher, and nothing more. And so for the next eight weeks leading up to the summer, we're going to take a look at some things that Jesus said that you actually find in your Bible that would never make it into a fortune cookie in the world in which we live. We're going to take a look at some of the most challenging statements to roll off of the lips of Jesus, um, statements that, if we're honest, we really wish Jesus hadn't said. And as we work our way through these various statements over the course of the next eight weeks through April and May, my hope is that you come face-to-face with the king whose resurrection we celebrated last week. I hope that um, if you're currently viewing Jesus as nothing more than a good teacher, that that myth would be debunked for you and that you would be sensible enough to either call him a crazy man or to call him an absolute liar or to, as Lewis says, fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, to call him king. And for those of us who are professing Christians in the room, my hope is that as we come face to face with each of these statements week in and week out, 
that we find ourselves even more so than we did coming into this series, bending our knee in glad submission to King Jesus um, as we um, experience an increase in joy submitting ourselves to all of the Bible, even the hard parts. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9. We'll be in verses 23 through 27 this morning. Very famous passage. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one under one of the seats in front of you and open up to page 563 in that Bible. Take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we love that you would be exploring the truth claims of Christianity with us. So please take that. We don't want it back. It's free. It's yours. Let's read this passage and we'll pray and we'll get to work says this, beginning in verse 23, And he, Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed of when he comes in his glory in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, I have no lofty speech this morning. I have no eloquent words of wisdom. Pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would make sense of my ramblings, um, of my chasing of rabbit trails this morning, of my sleep deprivation Um, would you wake us all up out of our slumbers so that we might see Jesus for who he truly is and might savor him more and more? And uh, would you help us to truly understand what it means this morning to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses? Would you um, debunk any sort of misunderstandings that we might have about these very words that rolled off of your lips, Jesus, a couple thousand years ago, and help us to walk away with a better understanding, but not just a better understanding, uh, but rather something that soaks its way through our thinking and down into the deepest parts of our affections and drives us to live in a different way, compels us to live differently by your grace. Would you do that by the power of the Holy Spirit? We ask these things in Jesus' name of you, Father. Amen. All right, when you look at the Synoptic Gospels, which would be the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're meant to see those Gospel accounts as a two-act play of sorts, you might say. And so the first act is meant to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus who calms the wind and the waves with his very voice? Who is this Jesus who heals lepers, who gives sight to the blind? Who is this Jesus um, who can take a little boy's lunchbox and turn it into a feast for 5,000 men plus their families? Who is this Jesus who casts demons out of people? Who is this Jesus who raises people from the dead? The first act is meant to answer that question. Who is he? And so it makes sense that the curtain would close as Peter declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's great declaration. House lights come up. We all get up for intermission. We go out into the hall. We grab our popcorn. Life is good at this point. Um, Throughout the first act, Jesus has been calling people to follow him. And at this point, none of us have a problem with that. We're probably all looking at Jesus going, yeah, I'd follow him. I mean, after all, he speaks with Messiah-like authority. Um, He's doing some things that exhibit Messiah-like power. So the call to follow Jesus is pretty compelling at this point, right? You can just imagine what what that intermission would be like as you're grabbing your popcorn. What's he going to do next? 
I mean, we know the story. We know how it ends, right? So it's hard for us to enter in and engage it this way. But if we were the disciples, we'd be thinking, what's he going to do now? What's, what's the next miraculous feat going to look like? Who's he going to heal? Where's he going to take us next? What, what is he going to do to exhibit his great power? Is it going to end in an all-out war, this battle with the Pharisees that's been going on? We see that Jesus raises the dead, so I'm going to put my money on uh, the guy who raises people from the dead rather than the religious neatniks of the day. You, know, you can just kind of imagine the thoughts that are going through the disciples' minds, and as we read it afresh, what should be going through our minds at this point. Can't wait to see how this story ends. It's going to be good because we're on the side of the guy who raises people from the dead. You got your popcorn in your hand. All is right in the world. House lights are brought down. You have a seat. Curtain opens, and without so much as a warm-up line, the second act begins with Jesus telling the disciples this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Right? You can just see the gaping mouths in the theater, right? What, what, did, he, what did he just say? All of a sudden, the bag of popcorn becomes an afterthought because you just entered into the sixth sense. You're trying to figure out how this thing's going to end now because there's a twist in the plot that you didn't consider, that you didn't think was coming. You're thinking, did I hear you rightly, Jesus? It sounded like you just used the words suffer and rejected and be killed, and you weren't talking about the bad guys. You were talking about yourself. That's really that's really strange. Now you can see why, according to Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts, that Peter would respond with, no, nope, no, that's, that's not how it's going to play out. That's not how it's going to happen, Jesus. You're not going to die. This is not going to end with your torturous death. The first act is meant to ask and answer the question, who is Jesus? The second act is meant to answer the question, why is he here? What is he here to do? And as the curtain opens on act two, Jesus answers that question immediately saying, I'm here to suffer and die. The king must die. Which begs the question, why must the king die? Remember last week I said we celebrate the resurrection of God from the dead. Why was God dead in the first place? That's a really strange thing to celebrate, right? Why must the king die? I think a really helpful verse, or actually chapter of the Bible that answers that question, is Psalm chapter 49. I believe we have that. Uh, up on the screen for you, available, says this beginning in verse 7. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. He goes on to say, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. That the king came to give himself as a ransom for you, as a ransom for me. Think of it this way. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says that in Romans the Bible also tells us that the wages of sin is death. Someone has to die. Someone has to bear the curse. That death has a knife, you might say, and it's being held to your throat. Death has a knife being held to the throat of a man. And Jesus, in order to save us, says, my throat in exchange for yours. It's, it's what we refer to as the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning that someone has to pay the penalty for sin, namely death. Substitutionary meaning my sins were put upon Jesus, the sinless one, and he was punished in my place. It's what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. He took my sin and gave me his righteousness, and now I'm now robed in it. So when God looks at me, he declares me righteous, not because I am, but because Jesus is for me. 
And then atonement, that his death actually accomplished something, namely that he has reconciled me to God, restored me to God. J.I. Packer describes it this way. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That we see it in the movies all the time, right? And it compels us. From Katniss volunteering as tribute to Bruce Willis's character in Armageddon, giving his life so that the world might be saved in exchange. It's this redemptive theme threaded into the tapestry of our story that we just can't seem to get away from. Even Hollywood can't get away from it. Jesus says the king must die so that you might live. But then Jesus says something completely counterintuitive to everything he just said. He says, I must die so that you might live. Now, if you want to follow me, you must die. That's really weird, right? That's really upside down kind of thinking, kind of language. And so I want to unpack this passage for us this morning, this not-so-fortune-cookie statement to come from the mouth of Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus says uh, to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. First of all, going back to what I said before, if Jesus is not the risen king of the universe, it's pretty arrogant and presumptuous of him to say what he just said, is it not? to, To tell us to lose our lives for his sake, to tell us to deny ourselves in order to follow him. I mean, what would that look like for you if a coworker or a fellow classmate came up to you and said, hey, come over here for a second. I need to talk to you. Um, If you want to come after me, You're going to have to lose your life for my sake. I'm going to need you to deny yourself so that you can follow me, so that you can be a part of my clique. That would be super weird, right? We would look at whoever that is and say, you're an arrogant jerk. You're a bit presumptuous to think that I would ever do that. And yet Jesus says that. This is one of those statements that makes it crystal clear that Jesus never intended us to categorize him as nothing more than a a good teacher, as a philosopher, Good moral teachers don't say, deny yourself and take up your execution device in order to follow me. That's a statement reserved for liars, crazy people, and the God of the universe. Jesus says, following me really is going to cost you. Christianity is not easy believism. Easy believism is a great danger in the church, especially in the Bible Belt. This idea that I made a decision to follow Jesus, so I'm good. That's not only inaccurate, it's unbiblical. If, If your life, if your story, if your testimony is one of, I went to a camp when I was 13, and I prayed a prayer, and so I'm good to go now, and and there's not been any sort of change of, of thoughts, a reorientation of affections of your will. If you don't see any of that happening, I'd begin to ask the question, am I a Christian? Have I experienced new birth as the Bible describes it? Have I been given a new heart by God? Jesus debunks easy believism in this text big time. He says, you want to come after me, you want to follow me, Two things are required, self-denial and cross-bearing. And and to be very sure, the two are not divorced from one another. Rather, they're two perspectives on the same truth, on the same reality. So let's take a look at each one of those one at a time and kind of unpack those. First of all, self-denial. Let me ask this question. When you think of self-denial, what what comes to mind? When you hear that word, what is it that immediately comes to your mind based on what you've learned along the way, based on what you've been taught I used to think, and some of you guys may be able to relate to this, that if it makes you happy, it's probably not God-honoring. 
And so uh, if it excites the least little bit of happiness in you, you should run in the other direction. Whatever feels like scourging is probably the right way to go. That's what honors God the most at the end of the day. Or perhaps another way you've heard it it said, and, and this is a little more subtle, that God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. Um, now, understand where, where that kind of thinking comes from, right? We, we live in a world where uh, a lot of people's motto is a Sheryl Crow lyric. If it makes you happy, can't be that bad. And so we, we respond to that, right? To be sure, there are plenty of things in the world that can make you happy, that can bring you a fleeting sense of happiness that are horrifically bad at the end of the day. But the response to that hedonistic way of thinking is not to then pit holiness against happiness. It's not to pit delight against duty. I don't remotely think that when Jesus uses the language of self-denial, that he's talking about denying yourself happiness. In fact, I would argue that to put happiness or passion or delight to death is dishonoring to God. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, my wife's favorite restaurant is the Bonefish Grill. Uh, devastating when we moved here because the closest one to us was about 25 minutes away, and now we're looking at an hour's drive one way, and so we're trying to figure out how we're going to do that because we got to still incorporate that into our lives. Is that going to be like a, a birthday and anniversary thing? You know, big uh, seasons of celebration. We're going to make that, that long drive um, what appears long to us. And so imagine for a moment that uh, one afternoon we get someone to keep Lanier, and that's our daughter, our 10-month-old daughter, and uh, I get my wife, Brooks, uh, we get in the car, I don't tell her where we're going, I just start driving into the city, and next thing you know, we're pulling into the parking lot of Bonefish Grill. All right, get that in your mind. <clears throat> Imagine that she then looks at me and says, what made you decide to bring me to the Bonefish Grill today? I mean, that's my favorite restaurant. That's really sweet of you to do that. And imagine if my response was, well, that's what husbands do, Brooks. Like, I'm obligated as your husband to take you on a date every once in a while. I'd be a real jerk if I didn't do that. It's my duty, honey. Imagine if I said that. How do you think that's going to go? What do you think the response is going to be to that? She's, she's not going to feel honored, right? But now, if I were to respond differently <clears throat> and say, it makes me happy to see you happy. It makes me happy to see you light up, to see you filled with joy, what she's not going to do is say, it makes you happy? You're a selfish jerk. I cannot believe that you would pursue your own happiness this evening by taking me on a date to my favorite restaurant. She's not going to do that, right? She's going to feel very honored as I use that language. I find my happiness in bringing you great joy, in honoring you. I should be very upfront with you this morning and let you know that I am one of the many in Christian evangelicalism who calls himself a Christian hedonist. And I'll unpack that soon enough. Very simply, what that means is that I believe that you're called to do everything that you possibly can to pursue your happiness, your joy, your delight to its fullest extent, namely in the God who created you to find your happiness and joy in him. Now hold that thought if you're a skeptic, okay? If you're a scourger in the crowd, hold that thought I'll unpack it soon enough as we continue through this morning's passage. But for now, simply want to explain what self-denial is and what it's not. It's not running as fast as you can from any and everything that could bring you happiness, that could bring you joy. So what is self-denial? Steve Timmis, in his commentary on this particular passage of the Bible, puts it this way. Very helpful. He says, self-denial is a total rejection of all self-worship and of every attempt to run your own life 
in pursuit of your own self-obsessed, self-glorifying dreams and ambitions. That you might say that self-denial is the rejection of yourself as king, as the rejection of yourself as shot caller of your own life. That self-denial is the rejection of all pursuits of self-glorification for the sake of Christ's exaltation. That might be another way that we could put it. That very simply, if you're spending yourself in an effort to make your name great, to make your kingdom great, to expand your kingdom, to fill your storehouses with more treasure, to gain more of a following, to feed your approval idol, to wield more power over more people as you claw your way up to the top of the human food chain, if you're spending yourself to that end, you're not following Jesus. You're not denying yourself. So now we see that although self-denial is not running from anything and everything that could possibly make you happy, it is unbelievably costly to deny yourself. That following Jesus will cost you your own glory. That following Jesus will cost you your own crown and scepter. That following Jesus will cost you your own dreams and ambitions. That in following Jesus, he gets to establish your dreams and ambitions for you. Essentially, he gets to use you as a stepping stone to make himself look really good. He gets all of the glory. You get the joy. He gets to wear the crown as the rightful king, and you get to be a peasant in his kingdom. And I'm going to argue momentarily that that's the only way to win in the end, that that's the only way to experience eternal true happiness in the end. As I'm going to argue momentarily, every other hand is a losing hand, a second-rate happiness journey, you might say. Now, I said that self-denial and cross-bearing are two perspectives on the same reality. So let's take a look at the second um, statement or uh, angle, I guess you could say, on what Jesus is saying here. Let's look at this language of cross-bearing. How is that helpful? Well, think of it this way. If, if self-denial is you saying no to something, namely yourself as king, then cross-bearing means saying yes to something, namely death. If you're a Christian, your life is not your own. It's God's to do whatever he pleases with it, even unto death. That It's not helpful for us to set aside the literal meaning of, of that type of language just because martyrdom is not something that you and I are likely going to experience. It's, it's possible that there's some in this room who will go out to places that are hostile toward Christianity and could face death. That is possible, but it's very unlikely that that's going to happen. But the reality uh, in that is, is that we must still wrestle with a question that I'd be willing to bet that many of you in the room have wrestled with, if you're a Christian, I should say. Um, the question is this. Um, would I die for Jesus if push comes to shove? How do I know that I'd die for Jesus if push comes to shove? I'll tell you, the first time that I experienced that question uh, with any sense of reality to it, was in 1999, Columbine Massacre. Uh, remember a girl by the name of Cassie Bernal, those of you who were alive when that uh, took place. Uh, she was said to have been held at gunpoint and asked if she loved Jesus. She said yes. She was shot in the head, died instantly, and became spread all over the airwaves. Media picked up on it, and we all began to hear that, and every youth pastor began to use that to his or her advantage to try to draw kids into the kingdom of God. What would you do if a gun was held to your head tonight? And I remember thinking, I, don't, I have no idea. I have no clue what I would do if a gun was held to my head. Seriously, how in the world could I possibly answer that question 
in the here and now. The reality is, for most of us, we have no idea how we'd react if we were put into that kind of situation. But here's the deal. I I do think it's possible to get a good bearing on where your heart is, even in the here and now. So let me share a list, a very brief list that I put together that might help us to get a beat on where we are right now in all of this. And I think this is very convicting. It was convicting for me this week to even sit with these statements. If you're not prepared to miss your favorite TV show in order to meet a need inside or outside of the church, you can be certain that you won't give up your life. If you're not prepared to make financial sacrifices for the good of the church and the good of the city, you can be certain that you won't give up your life. If you're not prepared to risk your reputation in order to tell others about Jesus, you can be certain that you won't give up your life. If you're not willing to move from the realm of church-hopping consumer to church-supporting contributor and servant, you can be certain that you won't be willing to give up your life. That the point is, for many of us, we, we don't need a gun held to our heads to determine whether or not we're cross-bearers, right? We simply have to have our comfort threatened. We simply have to have an opportunity to make much of Jesus get in the way of our favorite TV show or our financial goals or our reputation. It's really scary when you think about it to think that many who make up the visible church would and do turn from Jesus for far less than a bullet. And I would include myself in the masses on many days where I just don't want to deny myself and take up my cross. That if you're a Christian, Jesus says your life is not your own. It's God's to do whatever he pleases with it. If that's not what you signed up, or if that is what you signed up for, then you signed up for Christianity. If that's not what you signed up for, then you didn't sign up for Christianity, according to Jesus, that following Jesus will cost you your kingdom, your glory, and your life. And that brings me to the million-dollar question. Maybe I should say the bazillion-dollar question, which is this. Why would anyone sign up for that? I mean, you hear all that. If you're not a Christian in the room, you're going, yeah, you Christians are idiots. Like, you really signed up for that? You signed up to give up your throne, your crown, and your scepter, to give up control of your life to another who could then use you as a stepping stone for his glory? Like, that's what you signed up for. You guys are chumps, Christians in the room, right? I can imagine that you would be thinking that right now. So why would anybody sign up for that? The answer, I think, is found in the next couple of of verses. Um, Verse 25, Jesus asked this question, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is it doesn't gain. It doesn't profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit himself. Jesus is saying that you can get the girl. You can get the guy. You can make the big bucks. You You can build the perfect house. You can build the perfect family with the white picket fence and the dog and the two and a half kids. I don't know where the half comes from, but that's apparently part of the American dream. You can have the most fashionable wardrobe. You can establish the perfect friend group. You can go on the most exotic vacations and post all of your pictures on Facebook for the world to admire. And Jesus says, if you build your own kingdom and crown yourself king or queen of your life, in the end, all that you've built will crumble and you will be underneath the rubble of all of it. And maybe you're even thinking in response to that, so what? Like, that sounds way better than self-denial and cross-bearing. And if that's you, I think that's because you fail to take your eyes off of that which you're losing to fix them on that which you're gaining. Um, yesterday I had a a sermon illustration that just became reality for me. So 
We just moved into a house about a month and a half ago and tried to delay it, tried to delay it, tried to delay it, going out and doing the yard work and all that that you have to take on. Um, it's, it's one of the few things that I very much dislike about living and, and being a homeowner. And so I went out yesterday, and for four and a half hours, I cut back a thorny bush that, at the end of the day, I would assume is probably going to bloom some really pretty flowers in the next month or two. But here's the conclusion that I came to yesterday. There is not a flower in the world, like I'm talking on planet Earth, that is beautiful enough that I ever want to own a, a bush that has thorns on it and have that be a part of my landscape. I don't get the most exotic flower in all of planet Earth. I don't care. I'd rather my neighbor own that flower and I'll just get on a golf cart or in my car and drive circles around the neighborhood and just keep passing and looking at their uh, landscaping rather than having to deal with those thorns myself. It was miserable. It was not worth the cost to me. I viewed the flower as not worth having to deal with the thorns in the end. And that's how I think we need to view this passage this morning that if you don't see uh, what you're losing as worth losing, then you're not understanding truly what you're gaining uh, in terms of Christianity. The, the best verse, really, it's a parable, but it's one verse, it's one statement that I think helps to make sense of this is Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. It's known as the, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. Um, these are the words of Jesus. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. All right, get this picture in your mind. Guy stumbles on a field. All of a sudden, he finds a treasure hidden in that field, and he immediately covers it up so that no one else will stumble upon it. And then he begrudgingly goes and sells everything he owns, right? Wrong. It says in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he possesses so that he might obtain that treasure hidden in that field, that he saw something so invaluable in that field that it was worth emptying his bank account in order to obtain what seemed profitable to him. What was the treasure that he stumbled upon? Well, Jesus answers that for us at the very beginning of the parable. He says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And if you think about it, a kingdom implies dominion. It implies rule. It implies a king, right? You don't get a kingdom without a king. And so the idea is that all-encompassing in that is that you get the king himself, who is Jesus, the one who's actually speaking this parable before this crowd. That when you see Jesus for who he really is, when you see him as the treasure hidden in the field, then self-denial, cross-bearing, though unbelievably costly, as costly as emptying out your bank account for that guy in the parable, that although unbelievably costly, Self-denial and cross-bearing seem like a very small sacrifice based on the treasure that you're actually gaining, which is Jesus. That Jesus says you can build a kingdom, you can gain everything that this world could possibly offer you, and you'll lose everything. Or you can reject yourself as king. You can reject yourself as shot caller. You can hand over your life to me, Jesus says, to do whatever I please with it, as I use you as a stepping stone to make myself look great, and you will infinitely gain on that transaction in the end in such a way that everything you lose looks like garbage in compared to the treasure which you gain, namely me. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians 3, very famous passage 
Many of you have probably read these verses before. Paul says in Philippians 3, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, chest-beating language, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, I had everything going for me. I had built a name for myself. I had made a name for myself. I was looking really good amongst the masses of people that I had surrounded myself with in this Jewish subculture. But he goes on to say in Philippians 3, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For, this, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That Paul had established himself as the proverbial king of his empire. And he wasn't just willing to give up that empire for anything. In fact, he had to encounter something that was of surpassing worth to that which he had in front of him. He was just like the guy in the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. He's saying, I had a life that made me happy, but then I had a collision with a surpassing happiness. Another way we might say it is that Paul said, I'd been happy with a diet of flank steak, and then I tasted filet. Right? You ever been there? You've been eating processed garbage, and all of a sudden you get the real thing in your mouth. I just imagine my daughter two months from now when we start really beginning to feed her solid foods, then she's going, seriously, you guys were feeding me mum-mums for months? You were feeding me puffs when I could have had chicken, steak, like all these things that are so delicious on my taste buds? That Paul's saying, I had flank steak. I didn't know there was filet out there, and then I encountered filet. That's Christian hedonism. Jesus isn't calling you to forsake happiness for holiness, to forsake delight for duty. The two are married to one another. If you forsake your happiness in God, you become the person who communicates to the world, I follow Jesus, I read my Bible, I pray, I do these things because I'm obligated to do them as a Christian. It's my duty. It's just what Christians do. And there are a lot of people in the world saying that. And they're not drawing anyone into the kingdom of God. That poorly honors Jesus in the same way that it poorly honors my wife to say, baby, I brought you to Bonefish Grill because that's just what husbands do, at least the decent ones. We're kind of obligated to date night every once in a while. In contrast, when you see Jesus as the treasure hidden in the field, when you find your happiness in him, your happiness compels your holiness. Do you see how those are train tracks that are parallel to one another? That we don't need to forsake happiness. We need our happiness to be rooted in something, or in this case, someone who is of surpassing worth, namely Jesus. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it in his great work, The Weight of Glory. He says this. Many of you have heard this quote before. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. The idea is not to put happiness or delight or joy to death, but rather to see those things rerouted upon an object that, that can actually see those things to their end. That Jesus says to us, you can build your kingdom of mud, you can seek happiness in a slum, and in the end, you'll prove to be a fool. Or you can deny yourself mud in order to gain a holiday at the sea. 
That makes sense. That's a very different way of thinking of self-denial, right? Self-denial is actually the gain of everything. That what Jesus says in this morning's passage can be summed up in this way. Stole this from John Piper. says, deny yourself ten in order that you may obtain gold. That that's what Christian self-denial is. Deny yourself the fleeting pursuit of things that, that make you happy for a moment in order to obtain eternal happiness in God. So the question becomes, what's the tin in your life? What does that look like? What's the flank stake in your life? Whatever you're sinking your teeth into that you're seeking uh, ultimate happiness in that is divorced from God himself. If you don't see Jesus as being of surpassing worth to whatever that is in your life, then you'll hold on to it with white-knuckled fists only to lose it all in the end. And that's a good litmus test. What, what, what makes your, your fists white-knuckled? Whatever that is is probably what you're you're pressing into and seeking to grip more than Jesus as the treasure of your life. That the minute you loosen your grip on whatever that is that you gain, Paul says, you win, Christian. To be sure, you only have two options here. That's what verse 26 is about. If you go on to read in this morning's passage, Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That it really does boil down to this, that... Um, Jesus is either an infinitely valuable treasure worth giving up everything to gain or he is to be ashamed of. That we only have those two options. You might be inclined to go, wait, isn't there like a third option, maybe some, some middle ground here? And the answer would be yes, if you conform Jesus into your image, then yes, you can determine a third option. That's what we do when we take certain statements out of the Bible. Um, when, when we begin to rip out things that we don't like rather than taking it as a whole, and much of the world does that. That's where the idea of Jesus as good teacher comes from. You just rip out the text that uh, proclaim that Jesus uh, is deity, and you just kind of move on with your fortune cookie Jesus as, you know, pithy Zen philosopher kind of life as you follow him as a good teacher. On the one hand, it's an unwillingness to see Jesus as the king to be treasured, but on the other hand, there's a lack of courage enough to say, I'm just ashamed of him. He's the David Koresh of his day. He's a bold-faced liar. Not many people are willing to go there, but he doesn't leave space for that third option. The only way you can get there is by conforming him into your image and ignoring some of the things that he said, some of the things that we wish he hadn't said. But the Jesus that we encounter in this morning's passage does not allow us that third option. He says, crown me or crucify me. He says, deny yourself or deny me. He says, treasure me or be ashamed of me. And he says, if you do treasure me, you'll be my treasured possession and you will gain, just like the man in the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. You will win in the end. Be ashamed of me and I'll be ashamed of you when I return to make everything sad untrue. That everything stored up in your proverbial bank account that you were unwilling to sell, like the man in the parable, will be to your loss in the end. Now, here's what I love about Jesus. Verse 27 looks like a throwaway. Kind of looks like, why, God, did you include that in this particular paragraph? And in fact, I think it's Mark's gospel that moves that to the very next chapter as its own line. Verse 27, that statement. But it actually connects very well. Jesus says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Most, most commentators agree that Jesus here is referring to the, the Mount of Transfiguration, the very next passage in Luke's gospel account, which would connect it all together. 
And if you read ahead, you see on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens is that Jesus radiates with the glory of God in the presence of a few of his disciples, namely Peter, James, and John. That that is the sum in verse 27 that Jesus is talking about. So what do I mean when I say verse 27 reveals the kindness of God? I love this. Jesus essentially says in this morning's passage, I'm the treasure in the field. I'm worth everything I'm calling you to lose so that you might gain me. And then if you read the very next passage on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus in a very unique way reveals his worth to the boys. It's not just, hey, listen to what I'm saying, but let me reveal to you just how valuable I actually am, that I'm to be treasured. That's the grace of God for the disciples, and we actually can experience that too. As we spend time in the scriptures, we will see the worth of Jesus for who he really is. The question is, will we then respond in a way that says, all else is rubbish, everything else is a trinket in comparison to him, or will we deny him? In a moment, we're going to take communion. Communion is a a collective proclamation of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so communion is for Christians in the room. If you're not a Christian during this time, this is a great time to just process everything that we've we've talked about this morning. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That we take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup. The bread representing the broken body of Jesus. The cup representing his shed blood. If you're a professing Christian in the room, let me speak to you first. And then I'll get to the, the non-Christians in the room. Professing Christian, as we prepare to take communion this morning, here are just a few questions that I would in, encourage you to sit with. Number one, have you bought into the lie of, of easy believism? Does your life scream, I made a decision for Jesus, so I'm good? If so, maybe it's time to ask the question, am I a Christian? Um, am I a true Christian? Or am I just a Christian in name alone, a nominal Christian, a cultural Christian? Do I actually have a new heart? Number two, have you bought into the false dichotomy that God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness? Do, do you see how the divorcing of the two from one another um, have a way of, of making Jesus uh, not appear honorable? That God wants you to pursue happiness and delight to the fullest extent, namely in the one who designed you to find your happiness in him, in the holiday at sea, as opposed to the, the mud ply slums, as, as Lewis puts it. Number three, are you truly following Jesus? I mean, that's, that's a basic question out of this text, Right? Um, Are you rejecting yourself as king, as the shot caller of your life? Are you rejecting pursuits of uh, self-glorification for the sake of Christ's exaltation? Or are you spending yourself in an effort to make your name great, your kingdom great, to to build up your storehouses with treasure, um, to gain more of a following from others as you feed that approval idol? that needs those followers to wield more power as you work your way up to the top of the human food chain. Number four, what does it look like for you to take up your cross? I mean, what might Jesus be calling you to sacrifice for for the sake of his name, for the sake of his church, for the sake of his mission? Maybe it's time. Maybe it's 
money. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's reputation. I have no idea what that is for you. It's different for all of us. Maybe it's convenience. Do you really believe that your life is not your own, that you now belong to the king if you're a Christian? And lastly, is that good news to you? Do you see Jesus as an infinitely valuable treasure worth giving up everything to gain? And that's a question we have to constantly come back to, right? Because we're prone to wonder. Is he the treasure hidden in the field? Can you say with the Apostle Paul that Jesus makes everything else look like garbage in comparison to his worth, his value? And if not, will you be honest enough to vocalize to him where you are right now in all of that? We're so terrified to say things to God that he already knows about us. We think we can somehow hide behind our silence as if he has no clue of where we are at a heart level. Will you be honest with him? The reality of it is, just like Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is capable of revealing his worth to you if you'll spend time in the scriptures and seek to understand who he really is. I believe that he will reveal himself as the treasure hidden in the field to you. If you're not a Christian, my prayers for you this morning are, are really simple. Um, number one, that you would see that Jesus leaves no room for us to consider him nothing more than a good teacher, a good moral philosopher, a guy throwing out fortune cookie statements on a hillside in Galilee. Number two, that you would count the cost of following Jesus uh, so that we don't see more cases of easy believism in the church. If you go on to read um, in this particular chapter of Luke's gospel account, Jesus talks three men out of following him. A really terrible church planter, by the way. Like, three guys come up to Jesus and say, hey, we're, we're thinking about following you, and Jesus, and, and Jesus begins to unpack um, all the things that they're unwilling to leave behind in order to actually do so. Whereas most of us would go, you want to follow me? Let's pray, all right? I want you to pray this prayer after me. I have a card that I need you to fill out so that we can, you know, uh, increase our numbers and begin to tell people about all the things God's doing. And yet Jesus says, no easy believism here. I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. So if you're not a Christian, I pray that you would count the cost of following Jesus. But then number three, I pray that you ultimately would see Jesus as the treasure hidden in the field, that you would have a, a collision with the risen King who has ransomed us from death, from sin's curse, and that you would count everything as lost, just like the Apostle Paul compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, the treasure hidden in the field. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.